This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Mary Pass, because the truth will set you free. July 8, 1947. The Army Air Force has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com, where we ask questions and question the answers. I'm your host, Mel Fambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Tonight, you're in for a treat with our special guest, author, researcher, scholar, filmmaker, and conspiracy hunter, Jay Widener. This is a very special Veritas interview that I like to call Take Two. Why Take Two? Some of you know, but I know many of you do not know why. You better sit down from what I'm about to tell you. Let me give you some background. Prior to every interview, I make sure all the equipment is working and I conduct a battery of tests, almost like a pilot's checklist. Everything was working fine prior to Jay's interview with me. I watched Jay's latest DVD and conducted my research. So I was ready for a great interview. Well, it was an excellent interview. To my surprise, after I was done, I played the audio and found out that Jay's voice had been removed. Yes, removed. Bear in mind, our system records what I can hear. I thought something had failed with the first audio file. When I played the second audio file, the same happened. In fact, let me play for you the only part of the interview that was left or, quote-unquote, allowed to stay. This is segment one. Hello? Hi, Jay. Hey. And 
This is segment two. Hello? Hey, Jay. All we hear is the telephone ringing and Jay saying hello in both segments. Then after that, his voice was magically removed. My voice remained throughout the entire interview, even a few times. The topics were so controversial that I joked with Jay, saying that I suspected someone was listening and hoped they were learning something. This was always happening with Jay in every interview, where it feels as if someone is picking up the other line. But this time I had a feeling that it was really happening, as if this wasn't enough. Jay went on to appear on Jeff Renz's show the next day. Guess what? Jeff Renz had technical difficulties as well. What was the common denominator? Jay was speaking about crypto-terrestrials. I know, to many of you this may sound like science fiction, but that was exactly what Jay was saying is a very taboo topic, and probably what caused our entire interview to be wiped out. I have to give credit to the late Mac Tonys, who wrote the book Crypto-Terrestrials. He died in his sleep at the age of 34, on October 18, 2009, on my birthday. During tonight's interview, we'll discuss more of this. A few days later, I flew to California, where I was the master of ceremonies at the Sacramento UFO Paranormal Symposium. Jay was there. We had a long conversation at the bar. I shared the story with the audience there as well. We were both disappointed about what happened that week. I gave Jay a flash drive with the interview, which only had my voice, and I asked him to please fill in the blanks at his leisure because it was such an important interview, in my opinion. Well, I sensed that maybe Jay didn't want to discuss some of these subjects anymore. But a few days ago, our mutual friend and blogger, Zenboy, and I were communicating about something else, and he mentioned what had happened. He went to Jay and compelled him to do it again. Jay contacted me the next day and gave me the green light to proceed with another interview. That is why I call this interview Take Two. Jay will share new information, so perhaps the first interview was not meant to be. We are all very privileged to have Jay back on Veritas. Just before the intermission, I have another surprise for you. Jay and I are both fascinated with sound frequencies, especially A432 Hertz. You'll have to wait until the end of this segment to find out and learn what happened to the A432 Hertz frequency, the standard concert pitch that it was changed to A440 Hertz. A432 is the resonant frequency that has perfect harmonic balance. Jay Whitener will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, and if you're one of those who only listens to segment one, I think you'll be doing yourself a favor if you subscribe today. So you can listen to the full interview and all of our material. Stop waiting and subscribe today. Go to VeritasRadio.com, click on the subscribe button, and you'll receive your login immediately. And you will also keep Veritas on the air. Remember, we have no commercials and no censorship here. And don't forget to visit our Veritas store, where you can buy MMS. You know it. It's better to have it and not need it, than need it and not have it. And it's so inexpensive. You can also buy our futuristic metal case USB drives with all of our seasons and bonus material. Visit the Veritas store for more information.
And once again, I'm Mel Fabregas with a special report to discuss today's shooting at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. During a midnight screening of Batman, The Dark Knight Rises, 24-year-old James Holmes has been accused of the massacre. Holmes was a student at the University of Colorado. He moved from San Diego to pursue a PhD in neuroscience. He graduated with honors from the University of California, Riverside, two years ago. Aurora Police Chief Dan Oates said Holmes' apartment is booby-trapped with a sophisticated maze of flammable devices. It could take hours or days for authorities to disarm it. Five nearby buildings have been evacuated. Oates said Holmes had no criminal record in the state. Witnesses to the shooting said that a man appeared at the front of the theater about 20 minutes into the movie with a rifle, handgun, and gas mask. He then threw a canister that released some kind of gas, after which a hissing sound ensued, and he then opened fire on the crowd packed into the early morning screening of the film. Witnesses said that during the shooting, the man appeared to be dressed in all black, and police later said he was wearing several pieces bulletproof armor and a gas mask. The suspect had colored his hair red and told the police he was the Joker. He fired first with the shotgun, emptied it, and then calmly picked up the rifle and fired at the back of the movie theater. The victims range in age from 3 months to 45 years old. The 3-month-old has been discharged and is doing well, a hospital spokeswoman said. 10 people died in the theater. Two more died at the hospital, Aurora police said. Mr. Holmes had apparently planned the attack for some time. He wore a gas mask, body armor, a tactical helmet, and was dressed completely in black. He entered the theater with an AR-15 assault rifle, a Remington 12-gauge shotgun, and a 40 caliber Glock handgun. A fourth gun, another Glock pistol, was found in the suspect's vehicle, a white Hyundai, behind the theater. The authorities believe that Mr. Holmes acted alone and that the death toll may increase because of some of the injuries were serious. A few hours ago, I received a message stating that Stan and Lisa Romanek's daughter may have been one of the victims, so I decided to get in touch with them. I spoke with Stan and Lisa, and their daughter was not involved. However, they were indeed at the hospital, where the daughter of their friend Heidi Sudani was in critical condition. 22-year-old Farah Sudani remains in critical condition. Doctors have removed one kidney and her spleen. Her boyfriend was shot three times, luckily in the extremities. It was Farah's boyfriend's father, who immediately after the shooting started, jumped over Farah and covered her, saving her life. He was not injured, but Farah had already sustained severe wounds. This may sound graphic to some, but I'm reporting exactly what was said to me. Farah had an open wound to the abdomen, deep enough that it caused her abdominal organs to protrude through the open wound. Also, part of her leg was quote-unquote blown off. They were speculating at the hospital that it could have been a pipe bomb. But after further investigating, Farah's wounds may have been inflicted by the suspect's shotgun, which he used first. Not even a few hours after this incident, New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, an outspoken advocate of stricter gun control laws, said in a radio interview Friday, the two candidates for president needed to take a firmer line in addressing gun violence. I hate to bring politics into this event, but I find it very interesting how the topic of gun control continues to be mentioned every time. This event occurred just 13 miles away from the Columbine High School massacre, another incident that brought the gun control issue to the surface. 
Tonight's interview was supposed to air next week, on July the 27th. But because the movie The Dark Knight Rises was discussed during tonight's interview, I thought it was relevant to release it now. You will hear Jay Whitener mention how some have told him that Dark Knight Rises was especially made for him to decode. The movie's director, Christopher Nolan, is said to be a fan of Stanley Kubrick's work and has plenty of occult symbolism hidden in the movie, just like Kubrick did with most of his work. Another reason for releasing this interview today is the date, July the 20th, 2012. July the 20th has historical significance and relevance to tonight's interview. On July the 20th, 1969, Apollo 11, quote-unquote, successfully makes the first manned landing on the moon in the Sea of Tranquility. On July the 20th, 1976, the American Viking one lander successfully lands on Mars. On July the 20th, 1977, and pay attention to this one, the Central Intelligence Agency releases documents under the Freedom of Information Act, revealing it had engaged in mind control experiments. Why did they choose July the 20th as the day to release this information? And July the 20th, 2012, a masked gunman opens fire at a midnight showing of The Dark Knight Rises in Aurora, Colorado, killing 12 and injuring 59. Could the Colorado massacre be the result of this mind control program? How about Tucson, Virginia Tech, even Columbine, and multiple other incidents? I'm not implying that it was. I am simply saying that it is possible. It's interesting that after all the problems Jay Whitener and I faced conducting this interview weeks ago, that it would air on the very ominous date of July the 20th. And by the way, I just conducted an interview with former U.S. Congressman James Trafficant. Stay tuned. When I say Veritas is uncensored, I really mean it. And please, send your thoughts and prayers to Farah Sudani and all the other victims and their families. Thank you. And to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website, Veritas Radio. When the powers that want to be wish that certain information remain outside the mainstream, they usually subvert you or destroy you. Could our failure in conducting our original interview with Jay Whitener have been a warning? Are the topics that will be discussed tonight so important that exotic technology was used in order to silence our guest? Not only here on Veritas, but a, at a number of other radio programs. For decades, many have waited for an explanation of the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. We covered a lot of ground during our first interview in 2011 about this topic. But tonight, we dig deeper. If you are like me, and you never had a satisfactory explanation for the overall theme of this movie, Jay Whitener's perspective on Kubrick's film's is unique and deep, and tonight he will decode the complexity of Kubrick's film, as well as Kubrick himself. In addition, have you ever heard the term crypto-terrestrial? If evidence for the extraterrestrial hypothesis has failed to surface, despite decades of hard work and diligent investigations, then maybe we should consider the notion that we are looking for the answers in all the wrong places. Instead of looking up, Maybe we should be looking around us, and perhaps even below us, too. Is this topic so dangerous that it caused the author his life before the book was even published? To discuss cyber censorship, 
crypto-terrestrials, Freemasons, and more of Kubrick's hidden secrets, Jay Whitener is coming up next. This is Mel Famergus, and you're listening to Veritas. and you're listening to the very top show. Called by Wired Magazine, an authority on the hermetic and alchemical traditions, an erudite conspiracy hunter, Jay Whitener is a renowned author, filmmaker, and scholar, considered to be a modern-day Indiana Jones for his ongoing worldwide quest to find clues to mankind's spiritual destiny via ancient societies and artifacts. His body of work offers great insight into the circumstances that have led to the current global crisis. And to learn more about Jay Whitener and all of his wonderful work, visit his website at sacredmysteries.com. And once again, I'm privileged to have author, researcher, filmmaker, and conspiracy hunter back on Veritas, Jay Whitener. Hello, Jay. Welcome back. How are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you? Great, thanks. And, and I'm just going to take a minute to explain to the folks that who are listening who already know what happened. A few weeks ago, we did this interview. And for some reason, how they did it, I have no idea. You've gone through this more than I have. But your audio was completely removed from our interview. Two audio files. Any explanation? Have you come to any conclusions as to what could have happened? Uh, no, except that um, um, I think that we have, when you come to understand that the uh, <clears throat> internet was essentially uh, uh, invented by by the Pentagon and DARPA. devised by yeah and DARPA, then I think we can understand that, uh, and we have to come to grips with the fact that there's uh, numerous back doors, uh, trap doors that have been put into the uh, into the entire internet, and so at this point, it doesn't surprise me that. They can get into minutia uh, and uh, and and strip things away and add things and uh, it's just something we have to come to accept. The technology that they have is way way beyond what we've been let you know to for us to be known. So that's how it is. You know? And if it wasn't enough, I believe the next day after we did that interview, you had an interview with Jeff Renz, and something happened technically there as well, wasn't it? Yeah, we still don't know what that was. It just suddenly just started, stopped working. <clears throat> and um, I'm not sure exactly. Everything is a message, so I'm uh, I'm taking the message and, and looking at it very seriously and uh, trying to figure out what I should do about it. Almost that, you know, certain things you talk about, well, it's, the, the, what is it? The flag is, is, is more over the target. So obviously what you're saying means something. So anyway, let's start. Let's forget about what happened. And hopefully this won't happen again. But it's always exciting to me 
to have you on, Jay, uh, because every time you're back, you send me new material. And, and I have to say, every time I watch one of your DVDs, I think, all right, next time I watch a movie, I expect to hear Jay's comments, not the director's comment. Because what you talk about and what you see, it's almost as if all of us who are watching a movie have horse blinders. And while we listen to what you have to say, uh, those blinders just come off. And I honestly didn't know that you could be putting more stuff into Kubrick's Odyssey 2001 DVD number two. How were you able to compile more information into DVD number two? Uh, well, actually, <clears throat> that one started it first. In, in, in my life, uh, I came up with uh, DVD number two, Beyond the Infinite, a year, a few years before, about two and a half years before, I came up with the information that I discovered in Kubrick's Odyssey 1. I just chose to uh, present the information in a backwards fashion because <clears throat> I realized first off the importance of of uh, Kubrick's Odyssey 1 and the moon landings and getting that out. And then two, you, you could then juxtaposition the idea that he had fr uh, free reign to make whatever movie he wanted because he was cutting the deal. And then therefore we got the first alchemical film, maybe the only alchemical film really ever made, 2001 A Space Odyssey. So number one, uh, the first one of Kubrick's Odysseys, uh, called just Kubrick Odyssey, uh, Kubrick and Apollo, that one t it is just about um, how he faked the moon landing, how he used 2001 as a research and development project to uh, develop the technology to shoot the moon landing on a stage somewhere, probably in London. And uh, the second one is then in, uh, deconstruction of 2001 A Space Odyssey, revealing that Kubrick built that film as a shamanic, as a, as a cinematic way to shamanically initiate the audience viewing it, particularly people who were young and had uh, um, minds that were more easily molded. And <clears throat> coming from the generation that was coming of age, when 2001 came out, uh, when I saw it when I was 15, it was really my first religious experience in my life. Uh, uh, supposedly, maybe like what what happened to someone in the old days that they, when they first visited a cathedral. Um, and when the movie ended, I was completely stunned. I was a very young, you know, teenager, and uh, could not get out of my chair. Uh, couldn't believe that there could be a film like 2001 and it really it changed my life in some profound ways and I'm sure it was I'm not alone there's many many people who who uh, were changed by 2001 and uh, it was this was done on purpose by a very very intelligent guy Stanley Kubrick you know had a really high IQ who was a chess champion and um, and it, he he did this on purpose and uh, he he left behind these clues that were missed by everybody but are now getting out and now other people are going in and looking and we're all in contact with each other via the internet. It's very exciting and we're finding all these new things. But here's the really interesting thing, Mel, and it's good timing here that I'm on the show. Um, this, this deconstruction of Stanley's films um, is having a, a, a ancillary ramifications. And what's going on, and the first ancillary ramification that I've seen so far, is the film Prometheus by Ridley Scott. Uh, and uh, the, but the, more, but I'm have an insider information which I'm really re revealing here for the first time 
that uh, Insider has told me that The Dark Knight Rises, uh, the new film by Christopher Nolan, um, is going to uh, drive me bonkers. And that it... uh, and that this insider told me that the film looks like it was made for me to deconstruct <laughs> and that it's compl- has Masonic illusions and uh, um, alchemical illusions. And I haven't seen it. So it won't be out until July 20th. Incredibly, uh, the same exact day that Stanley Kubrick insisted that Eyes Wide Shut come out. Incredibly, the same day that the astronauts landed on the moon, quote unquote. And, uh, Christopher Nolan is known to be, uh, you know, to hold Stanley Kubrick as his hero. So what I'm thinking is going on here is that my work has been seen by filmmakers like Ridley Scott and Christopher Nolan. I know it sounds kind of egotistical, but I, I, if you're interested in Stanley Kubrick and you're a filmmaker, believe me, my kind of stuff is going to get to you. You're going to, you're going to want to see it. And I think they saw, both of them, in their own way, that, you know, dang, you know, that bugger Stanley was sticking stuff in the film that could be uncovered later, cementing, you know, his genius. And I'm not doing that. And Ridley Scott went so over the top trying to fill his film up with allegory and metaphor and alchemy and 2001 and um, transformation and spirit and that, you know, it, it overwhelms 99% of the people who see the film. Uh, and and I'm, I've had to take a long time between viewings of it to really begin to appreciate what Ridley Scott's doing in that film. And it, well, I will do an unraveling of it one day, but it is so filled with stuff that the unraveling is going to be, you know, a, a long ordeal. And I'm waiting to see, you know, The Dark Knight Rises or whatever the title of that film is on July 20th because I have a feeling it's going to be um, absolutely dynamic. So the, so the question is, is now what's happened is, is that because Stanley Kubrick did this, because he loaded his films up with symbols and 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 visual tricks, et cetera, that I've uncovered in these two films of mine, other filmmakers have caught on to it now, realize that this is the path towards greatness, uh, and they're now they've become Kubrick. And so now they're making films like Stanley Kubrick. They're giving us messages and uh, telling us stories that are that are hiding underneath the main story. Uh, knowledge that they know from hanging out with the upper class who is who finances films. I'm glad that our first show didn't work because otherwise you would not have said what you're saying today. Um, I've heard that The Dark Knight will be nominated for an Oscar. That's how good it is. I've heard from somebody who told me that today. And, well, yesterday I did an interview with a gentleman, Richard Cassaro, and he reminded me of you because what woke him up was cathedrals, just like what some of what happened to you, too. And Freemasons. Was, was Kubrick a Mason? Probably. I don't think you can get in. Every single person that I've ever talked to that was in the Apollo program was a Freemason. Yeah. Everyone. Um, it goes with the territory. The same thing was true, by the way, with the Manhattan Project. Every single person involved in the Manhattan Project was a Freemason. And so I, I think you have to understand that 
once you pass through the the degrees of Freemasonry, you're allowed into their uh, their, um, their breakaway, club. yeah, their breakaway civilization, their club, and Kubrick was part of it, and there's no doubt about it. So Prometheus, since we're talking about that movie, when I saw it, I, I, I had a lot of disconnects, but at the same time, it had more or less the same vibe, look and feel. As 2001, and there were even some similarities between the movies. Did you did you find that out too? Oh yeah, the the robot um, was named uh, Dave, David, just like Dave Bo David Bowman, and he had Hal's voice. Yep, um, slightly effeminate voice, and um, <clears throat> yeah, the and the yeah the whole movie was in a way an homage to 2001 and Stanley. Uh, with some of Ridley Scott's uh, extremely uh, strange, actually, um, understandings about our history and beliefs and spiritual beliefs, but not altogether um, a disconnect. Uh, it's it, in a way, Prometheus is a, a very Gnostic film, and I'm, I'm not going to unravel it here today because it's it's actually too deep, and I'll miss too much. Um, it's so deep that there's no way that um, You can do it justice with uh, l less than at, at least five viewings. So I have to watch it, you know, at least three more times before I can even begin to understand what what the intrinsic message is. What's interesting, though, about Prometheus is that everyone, well, now they're starting to catch on, but at first everyone seemed to be missing that um, very essential fact that the reason that the crypto-terrestrial aliens are progenitor species In, in the movie, anyway, um, the reason that they're angry at us, it kind of just slips by you if you're not paying attention, is that they're, they're, it says in the, in, in the film that it's because we killed their la the last guy they sent to come help us 2,000 years ago. Uh, and so it's rather jarring because basically, essentially, Prometheus is saying that Jesus was an alien, who one of the crypto-terrestrials who came here to teach us, uh, and we killed him, which I find um, very strange, and a very Gnostic belief, by the way. That's interesting. Uh, once again, going back to uh, Kubrick, I've never had a satisfactory explanation for the overall theme or, or the final scenes. And once again, you include more in part two. Give us a synopsis of what you discuss in DVD number two. Well, basically, um, what 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 Kubrick was trying to do, and I believe I have some ancillary information that he had inside info that something that that the this group of uh, high-level masons that he was involved in were going to do something of a ritualistic or um, magnitude that was going to change the landscape of the world and allow them to take over in the year 2001 and i believe he knew this at the time he was making it i believe he found out sometime around 66 because that's when he changed the title from Journey to the Stars to 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I have other evidence um, that shows that um, he and possibly another filmmaker, a famous filmmaker at the time, had evidence of uh, that something was going to occur. They may not have known exactly, but maybe they did. And uh, he, I think, Stanley tried to get ahead 
of this event that he had come to understand was going to be happening that was being planned then for 2001. And so he renamed the film and then doing the work for the government that he had to do, i.e. faking the moon landings, he then <clears throat> contrived a, a masterpiece of alchemical transformation. And the monolith, which uh, transforms the ape into a thinking, uh, tool-using creature, that transforms uh, uh, the astronaut Bowman in, into uh, uh, a higher being, um, is the black stone. The, the black monolith is the black stone, the philosopher's stone of alchemy. And it is the stone that transforms, and and it, and the only time that it interacts with us in the movie is when it needs to transform us, and uh, the, that is what the movie is about. And at the end, you know, in a way, 2001: A Space Odyssey is the most optimistic film ever made, um, because in the end, it's saying that uh, the human race is uh, destined to meet the progenitors and then they are going to reveal all of the knowledge of the universe to us in one one situation just like bowman goes through the monolith and all of the uh, knowledge of the universe is revealed to him in, in 17 minutes or actually it's about 12 minutes and he's overloaded with it when he lands in the in the white room, the mysterious scene that's at the end of 2001 that no one can figure out what it means, but which I think I give the most adequate explanation for. And uh, and so uh, we can imagine, you know, what Kubrick is trying to tell us. But what he did with this, with using the right symbols, by using a black stone. By using uh, the certain kinds of sexual imagery and um, showing us uh, a world that was beyond our imagination and telling it in a very odd anti-Hollywood way, Kubrick inserted a key into our psyche and, and turned it and opened us up using light and sound projected onto you know, the movie screens the, inside the darkness, just like in a church. And, uh, and movie theaters are, are a lot like um, the, the experience of, of what cathedrals used to be like. It would, you know, when, imagine being a you know a village farm kid coming into Paris in in the 1500s for the first time, and walking into Notre Dame when the sun is blazing through the the rose window, and you know that would be the most stunning thing that you've ever seen in your life. And in 2001 was was that to my generation was the most stunning thing we'd ever seen. It was our cathedral. And uh, he did it on purpose. It was a, a work of genius. And it was a, a man who knew something and was going to try to get ahead of it. And I think he did. And I think that when 9-11 occurred in, two, in 2001, it because of the shamanic way that the boomer generation had been transformed and then passed that knowledge on to the next generations, uh, the shock was not as great, and the idea that we should expose it, and who did it, and find a way to rebuild a society that doesn't ever let that kind of thing happen again, 
um, has started, and the seeds of the of the revolution of what we're going to build next have been planted. And in a way, the perpetrators of 9/11 had to have could not have done it much later than they did, because the awakening was already starting. It would be almost impossible for them to do it now and, and have people believe <clears throat> what they're what that that the event was real because now people don't believe anything and that's a good place for us all to be. Yeah, I agree with that. And nine eleven in Hollywood, you remember May two thousand one on the spin-off of the X Files, the Lone Gunman. Once again, Stanley Kubrick May two thousand one. It was it was it started what nineteen sixty eight and uh, nineteen sixty nine. We had the the alleged lunar landing. Do you think that was to acclimate the public to watch the movie first, see it, and then see what we saw on our TVs after and say, oh, it's seamless. It's the same thing. Yeah, it was exactly. Except that um, uh, stand, the 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 footage on the ground, um, I believe, looked too much like 2001, um, and so they had to send it through a, a, some kind of video disrepair, <laughs> and they went in there and added, obviously, added uh, junk uh, to cover up and 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 make everything look crappy and which wouldn't really there's no reason for that since there's nothing of obscuring a signal from the side of the moon facing us and and, and several uh, good antennas and they've never been able to explain the video crap that's all over the moon footage and uh, you know it's just it's just more of their obfuscation uh, Kubrick probably added all that in <clears throat> because he was ordered to but his stuff uh, looks better the the footage in 2001 on the moon's surface actually looks better in 2001 than it does in Apollo and um the real clincher though for um for uh the problems that Kubrick faced there's a really good interview with a guy named Jeremy Bernstein, which I think you can get on the internet, that Kubrick did in 1966, which would be right in the center of just finishing up the Apollo landings and um, beginning the real shooting on 2001. And, you know, he's, he's, a, it's, he's at the height of his intelligence in this interview. And he says, you know, I, I, my, my main job is I'm a problem solver. I, I'm, a, I'm a guy who uh, uh, just goes from moment to moment solving problem after problem. That's all I do. That's my life. And, you know, that's exactly right. And so when he was doing the Apollo stuff, he was a very intelligent guy who understood science and understood cinema. And, and, and so breaking free here from the alchemical significance of 2001 and getting back to the nuts and bolts of how you, how you fake things and the problems that you face, you know, uh, trying to fake a moon landing. Um, his biggest problem of all was um, how to fake um, quarter G, uh, quarter G gravity situation. And um, so in that situation, a 180-pound guy uh, who can leap up in the air two feet would be able to leap up in the air eight feet. And if you uh, added, say, as much weight as he his body, 180 pounds of stuff on his back, then he should be able to leap four feet doing the math. And uh, so Kubrick saw this and realized that this was going to be a really serious problem. The other serious problem that he uh, was facing was how do you make um, that 
when you're in a, a less gravity situation, there's less resistance to your movement. So you're moving actually, well, we don't faster. know how you would move, but you would build faster, yes. You would be moving faster in a faster clip with less resistance against your forward movement, especially in a place with no atmosphere. So Kubrick tried probably a lot of things and then realized that nothing would work. He could not really fake any of it. He tried a few wire tricks, it looks like, in, in some of the, the astronaut leaping things, uh, which are unconvincing at best. And the astronaut actually never leaps higher than about a foot and a half uh, up in the air, if you really look at the at the footage. Um, and uh, so he just decided that to junk the whole idea and to make everything go in slow motion. Uh, and even though that doesn't make sense on a physics level, it didn't matter because somehow just by cranking it down by about 40%, uh, uh, it looked etheric enough to maybe in your imagination, if you didn't know anything about physics, think that it was um, shot in, uh, in, in a quarter G situation. Um, interestingly enough, this was, uh, as your question uh, 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 alludes to, uh, this is exactly what was being done in 2001. The astronauts, the stewardesses on board, all are moving in slow motion at pretty much the same exact rate that the astronauts are moving in the uh, Apollo footage. And uh, so Kubrick made that in 2001 to create the idea that when you're in zero G, I mean quarter G, you're uh, looking like you're walking around in in soup, in a clear in a clear soup, you know, kind of muggy, and, and you can, you're struggling to walk through underwater. It. Yeah, underwater, and it, and it's exactly the opposite, and that's really one of the red herrings and one of the ways that you and nobody, by the way, no matter how many uh, um, how many emails I get uh, uh, attempting to uh, shoot me down, no one, no one has ever tried to shoot me down for that one. Well, that's what I'm saying. When you see the woman and the spacecraft and she's moving very slowly, it's almost as let's let's make people understand that this is the way it is so that when they see the moon footage, they won't question it. That's right. It's tedious almost. It's almost yes. tedious. It's like, why are we spending so much time walking, watching this woman walking? And as well, because he wants you to see it. Exactly, exactly. And um, for the folks who are listening, if you haven't listened to the first installment of, of what I'm discussing with Jay, go back to the first episode that we did last year and you'll be able to hear more about this. But um, you mentioned, I remember, something about the, 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 the uh, TV series Get Smart, something relevant regarding, you know, the, the, the uh, Easter egg hunt, if you will, that uh, Get Smart had in one of the episodes. Can you repeat that if you could? Yeah. Um, let me think. Oh, yeah. I think you can actually get this on YouTube. I think it's called The the Walls of Jericho or Come, come Down the Walls of Jericho or Tumble Down the Walls of Jericho. And it's an episode of Get Smart from 1967. And it is the um, linking evidence that I believe links uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, Stanley Kubrick, and Mel Brooks, who incidentally lived just a couple of blocks from each other at the same exact time in the late 50s and early 60s in the village in New York, uh, two New York filmmakers uh, and writers. Um, and uh, they probably knew each other. Mel Brooks said Dr. Strangelove was the funniest movie ever made. And um, in this episode, written by Mel Brooks, um, it's, it's dynamic. Uh, it's, it's, it's like kind of unbelievable. 
Um, I'll, I'll try to surmise as quick as I can. The uh, control, who are the good guys, find out that chaos, who are the bad guys, this is a comedy, of course, um, are, are, have a construction company um, that is building, building construction companies named Krupa Industries. Uh, the construction company uh, is building buildings that are housing government workers, and then the buildings mysteriously crumble apart, killing everybody inside. And Maxwell Smart gets assigned by the chief to find out why, what's going on, how this is happening. And uh, he says, you have to find it out because they're building a building right now, which is going to house the space agency's uh, moon program. And so Max goes to the building site to get a job on the construction crew to find out what's going on in the construction of these buildings. And we find out that the building is called the Odyssey. And um, Max gets in. He eventually finds out how they're doing it. And what he finds out is, is that they're building the, the explosives into the construction of the building. And he tells the chief, and they're all arrested, and everybody is saved by Max. I told this story to a... Um, a uh, systems engineer, a construction systems engineer for uh, high rises, mm -hmm. uh, and I showed him that YouTube. Uh, which I also got the, you can get the episode on Netflix, uh, 1967, the year. That's very important to remember that year. Um, <clears throat> and he said that actually that's the only way that you could actually wire that the buildings up without anybody seeing. So. Um, uh, and he was he was a guy who builds high rises, and and he was actually very troubled when I showed him that episode. And um, so, what does all this mean? Is it just wild conjecture and coincidence and all that? Yeah, it could be. At the same time, you know, we have uh, Mel Brooks and Stanley Kubrick who are both um, living you know a few blocks from each other. We also have you know, um, we just you you see the number of coincidences inside the. Um, inside the uh, Mel Brooks Get Smart thing, and then you look at 2001 A Space Odyssey, and you can almost see that, and then you also have to realize that the World Trade Center was um, uh, had, had been decided and was actually breaking ground in 1967. Uh, when you understand that, that it had all been decided, it all had already gone by the time he did it, and then Kubrick decides to change the name of his movie at the same time. From Voyage to the Stars to 2001, A Space Odyssey, which the movie has really nothing to do with the year 2001. Not really. And uh, you begin to see that there's a pattern. And I'm just saying there's a pattern. That's all. Just like the Lone Gunman series from May of uh, 2001, in which, you know, the um, remote control uh, plane is hijacked by remote control and, try and attempted to fly into the World Trade Center. You know, and, and the opening episode of that show. So, you know, it's like insiders find out things and then they try to tell us. And, um, and I think The Dark Knight Rises is going to be one of those things. Why do you think that Kubrick named it 2001? Why that year? Because he knew that was the year that this group had decided that their um, event was going to occur. And it was done for Masonic reasons. If you examine the events of 9-11 from a Masonic point of view, if you were a 33rd degree Freemason and it was 8 o'clock at night on uh, 
on September 11th, 2001, um, and you were reviewing the events of that day, uh, and you understood your symbology uh, very well, you would know that, in fact, what got struck that day was <clears throat> the twin pillars of Jochum and Boaz and the, the sacred pentagon, which is, are the three symbols that are in every Freemasonic lodge. The, joke, the two pillars, Jochum and Boaz, and they're always on the wall. There's a pentagon. And it was a violation of those three things. It was almost like an announcement that said, these are your symbols. That was your rule. This is what we think of it. And now we're in charge. That's what I would say. It was another group had taken over from the 250, 300-year, maybe possibly older reign of the Freemasons. So you think that this was a, a, a transition? I do. I believe it was a, a planned transition by a group of high-level uh, magi, I guess you could call them. Well, I was just thinking of what you said about the, the, the moon and the fact that, that what we were seeing was so crappy, if you will. And the reason for that, I think, is because um, a camera was pointing at a TV that was receiving the first-generation feed. Right. Yeah. So what we saw was a camera pointing at a TV. Now, how come people don't question that? <laughs> well, you know, apparently you got the technology to get all the way to the moon, but you can't put out multiple monitors, you know. <clears throat> and uh, so, no, of course, that's uh, that's a sign of one more layer of BS added into the visuals to really throw you off just in case. Yeah, it was that was probably Kubrick, by the way, that insisted on that. He just felt so uncomfortable, you know, as it got closer and closer. He kept insisting on different kinds of changes and and things. And of course, each mission, uh, the special effects get more and more spectacular. Like there's a learning curve, right? Yeah. Uh, so there's no um, front screen projection of Apollo 11. Apollo 12, they accidentally pointed the camera at the sun as soon as they landed burning out the uh, camera, and so we saw nothing. Apollo 13 didn't get there, um, so we had a huge uh, waft of time between Apollo 11's uh, images and Apollo 14 images. Apollo 14, you can see it's a gigantic leap in, uh, in uh, advancement of uh, technology. And I'm not telling you that they were shooting the stuff while it was going on. Everything had been shot by 1966 in the can. Kubrick was off to shooting 2001 and had nothing more to do with it. So uh, you got to understand that. This stuff was all planned in 64. It was all planned. It was all shot. Everything was in the can. Um, so the Apollo 14 effects get pretty good, but you still see a lot of bleed in the background, especially uh, the shots of, uh, of Ed Mitchell, uh, uh, Edgar Mitchell. Um, you can see the bleed through of the, of the front screen projection really clearly, as Hoagland proves, even though he thinks they're 20 mile high alien cities, they're actually just the uh, structure of the front screen projection technology behind the astronauts. And then you can see in 15, he gets a little bit more, 16, a little bit more. He's got the rover. Uh, he's getting more and more dangerous. But if you notice, the rover never throws the dust out the back uh, tires any higher than they would go on Earth. And in right. fact, in, uh, uh, in the gravity of the moon, they should rise up. The dust should be flying up 8, 12 feet at least <clears throat> if it was being stirred in that kind of gravity situation. But no, it never goes any higher than about a foot and a half. 
And uh, the same thing, um, uh, by 17, he's really got it down. Um, his front screen technology is second to none. And, um, you know, that's when he uh, probably went off after that and did all the uh, front screen work for 2001, saving the movie, of course, for when he understood everything on how to do it. And uh, you can see that the, the front screen technology in uh, 2001 is so good, so breathtaking. At the time, there was nothing like that, nothing. Every science fiction film looked corny. Um, every time that they tried to do something uh, with uh, what is called back screen projection, it looked fake because when you project uh, 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 when you project images uh, on the back of a screen and then you shoot from the other side which is what Hollywood used to do, there's a half a stop difference in the two, so it always looks uh, weird and different, the background. And uh, Kubrick hated uh, back screen projection because of that, and so did uh, Orson Welles, and they never used it, except for times when he actually wanted it to look weird, like the scene in Clockwork Orange where they steal the car. That's back screen projection, and it's done to give you an eerie, dreamlike effect. Uh, so Kubrick understood everything, and he put the signature fingerprints in his films that would allow you to unlock the key to see how he did the moon landings. And, of course, The Shining is his confession uh, to the moon landings uh, and, and to what he went through and what he put his wife through. And, uh, and, and that, uh, by the way, also has uh, defied my uh, naysayers who can attack me in a lot of ways, but when it comes to my interpretation of The Shining, there's a long and uh, noticeable silence. And it seems that uh, mostly anything related to the moon has Freemason fingerprints all over the place. You know who else is a 33rd degree Mason? Opie, Ron Howard. In order oh. to make the film Apollo 13, he had to complete his 33rd degree? That's exactly right. And... Um, uh, um, and, uh, he, uh, and I, and I, what I suspect happened there is that, you know, Ron was a, as a great patriotic American, wanted to make a film. I don't know any of this. I'm speculating here because I don't know what actually happened, but I went through this as a filmmaker. I once wanted to make a film about Apollo and, uh, and the landings. And so I, I went through a process when I began writing the screenplay for this movie of mine. This was about 25 years ago of running up against these barriers in NASA, uh, refusing to answer questions and give me documents and things. And that's actually how I got started in all this. And I finally gave up uh, attempting to write a screenplay about the Apollo program because of this. I think Ron Howard signed his uh, screenplay writer to, to write a screenplay possibly about Apollo 11 or maybe, you know, 17 or one of the interesting missions. And, um, and I imagine that his poor screenwriter, you know, he says, Oh, great, man, this is going to be great. And he goes back and he starts, you know, going through the NASA archives and there's like 50 million questions that rise up within the first five minutes <laughs> of yeah. looking into their archives. And so you start writing down questions and you start writing to NASA like I did. And you get the most obfuscated replies and uh, pointed in wrong directions. And no one knows what's going on. And no one can answer your questions. And then you finally give up. And I think that's what happened with this, his screenwriter. He, they were going to make a patriotic film about about NASA, and they got in there and was like, what, what, what? And then finally they say, no, screw it. Let's just make it about Apollo 13. Then we don't have to go to the moon at all. That's but what's right. interesting about Apollo 13, the movie, um, is that 
there, there is a scene where they go to the moon in the movie, and it's a dream sequence of Tom Hanks. And the dream sequence of when Tom Hanks is on the moon is the phoniest, fakiest looking thing in the whole movie and actually ruins the movie. And so Ron Howard, in his attempt to uh, remake the moon sequences, uh, you know, best he could do is say it was a dream sequence because it looks so pathetic. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty and, uh, amazing. Yes. I'll give you and, another uh, tidbit here. Um, uh, people can go um, check out the movie Toy Story. And uh, this is just to show you that Hollywood insiders know everything I'm telling you. Toy Story came out in the early 2000s. I can't remember what year, but it doesn't really matter. And I'll do a quick synopsis here. In this movie Toy Story, um, Buzz Lightyear... <laughs> is a astronaut who um, is a superhero and he fights, you know, he's always out in space and doing all sorts of stuff. He's a big hero. Well, one day he looks up and he's watching the TV and he sees an ad for Buzz Lightyear and he realizes he's a toy. And he gets really depressed. And there's this really sad Randy Newman song, and and he's depressed and hangdog, and he's walking, you know, up these stairs, and he's realizing that he's just not a superhero; he's just a toy. So he jumps up on this railing in the house that he's in. You know, he's just a little toy, so he has to crawl up to the top of this railing, and he looks through the window and looks out at outer space, and then he gets a determined look on his face. Uh, uh, like he's going to fly, like he really can fly, like he's not a toy. And there on the wallpaper behind him is the same exact pattern that's on the um, on the carpeting that's under Danny in The Shining when he, he becomes Apollo 11 and takes off. It's the same exact, same color, same pattern, same everything. Buzz Lightyear then leaps off the railing, attempting to take off to go towards the outer space, and he crash lands and breaks. So that tells me that, you know, Hollywood has already figured out what I figured out, and they knew it years ago. This is from uh, Toy, Toy Story number one, the one yep. in 1995? Yep. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Whenever I heard the name Buzz Lightyear, I always thought of uh, Buzz Aldrin. Exactly. He is by Aldrin. That's exactly yeah. right. And uh, um, and he didn't go to the moon. That's and, right. And he and the filmmaker is alluding to the scene in The Shining. You know, it's clear. There's no doubt. And I found a gentleman with the name of uh, Douglas Trumbull. He says that the total footage shot for 2001 Space Odyssey was 200 times the final length of the film. You say that about The Shining as well. So it seems that he had carte blanche with every movie 200 times you obviously know how much a foot uh, a film costs right oh lord expensive as hell i mean i can't even imagine what what he, what you know what what is a developing cost and the film footage costs were but they were in the millions yeah and he's the only director that got to do that and uh, and you wonder what <clears throat> what that's about you know and um and i think it's um and in some ways i think um I'll just say this because I haven't said it in public before. Uh, he became fascinated with subliminal imagery that they were using in ads, and he became with uh, an O'Brien's book, so subliminal imagery, which came out in the uh, early 70s, uh, in which uh, O'Brien proves that uh, ad makers were inserting sexual <clears throat> uh, organs into like glasses of vodka and uh, uh, things that were in ads and magazines and also in the, on the TV. 
And uh, Kubrick uh, became fascinated by this and loaded up The Shining with these kinds of images, and that'll be coming out in the third part of my Kubrick series. I'll show you these sexual images that are buried in the background in uh, The Shining, which are really disconcerting. <laughs> and uh, it's really, in some ways, very hilarious in a devious and uh, uh, scary kind of way, though. <laughs> And uh, it was essentially the substory uh, uh, through these images in The Shining is that Jack Nicholson is actually uh, attracted to Danny and uh, is, is has dreams of having sex with him. That I'm not kidding you. That's actually uh. the substory of the subliminal imagery of of The Shining. Uh, but that's another day and another story. But well, anyway, you know how, how, go ahead. how movie theaters got in trouble because at, at one point they were putting maybe one frame with a Coca-Cola oh, yeah. or oh, a yeah. popcorn and people would be buying and don't, not knowing why. Yeah, but this is different. This is actually kind of an airbrushing almost. I'm not sure what mm. he was using. I haven't figured it out yet in the ni late 1970s, early 80s. But it's an airbrushing almost uh, uh, cinematically uh, putting... Mm, you know, penises and breasts and and all sorts of things in the in the images. You know, I felt I remember when I first time I saw The Shining, I felt like I had to take a shower. When I felt like mm -hmm. I'd been watching porno almost mm -hmm. when I walked out of the theater, and I was I was a huge Kubrick fan, and I was stunned. I didn't like the film, and it wasn't until you know a couple of years ago when I started seeing this subliminal imagery that I realized you know why I felt so greasy, and he did that on purpose, and. um It's outrageous, actually. It's a, there's more in The Shining than than any film ever made, actually. So you think Jack Nicholson was portraying a pedophile? Um, I do. Um, absolutely, he was um, a homosexual pedophile. Um, huh. He's reading Playboy Playgirl magazine at the beginning of The Shining while he's waiting to meet the hotel manager. And it's well known uh, by people that in the 70s, Uh, the only people that were buying Playgirl were gay men. Um, women weren't buying it. I mean, the people who ran magazine stores, you know, reported that they never ever had a woman buy it in most cases. But, you know, throngs of men would come and buy it. And so it was well known as an inside joke, you know, that, oh, you know, that, you know, the only people that read Playgirl are men. And, uh, that he has Jack Nicholson clearly reading it. And, um, And then there's a lot of other things. But yeah, uh, definitely. Um, Jack Nicholson is gay, and he uh, does not like Shelley, uh, his wife. I mean, this is, and he um, mm, oh, likes children. I hate to say it, but that's the understory. It's almost as if they're presenting the, the whole pedophile ring that happens in our own positions of power, almost as if saying, look, this is what happens behind the scenes. Yeah, how about the. How about this? The most taboo thing that there is in our society is that, is, yeah. uh, is having sex with children. It's just almost yeah. the most, no matter how liberal you are sexually, almost everybody who has a right mind can't get their head around it. It's just, it's just, they, just they can't twist it around the idea that this is okay. And it's a, it's a visceral reaction. It's deep. It's, it's almost an anger. Peaceful people get riled up over it even. And, um, so, um, this kind of thing is being, so what, so this behavior is, um, addictive, but it has to be concealed at all costs. And so the, it wouldn't take much more than one time at some point in history 
for a secret pedophile to work his way up into the head of, say, a Freemasonic organization and then start moving his <clears throat> pedophile friends into the higher positions of this um, organization and then begin using the secrecy of this organization to obtain sex. I don't think it's that big of a, a leap uh, at all, in fact. And um, and so uh, I'm what I'm saying is is that what lies at the very core of this criminal cabal that rules us, and this is from Stanley, not from me, is a group of pedophiles. That's all I can tell you. I can't tell you much more than that. I, I'm only imagining and speculating as to how this occurred, but it could have occurred in the way I just described. Let me take a quick detour and going back to the cathedrals again, because I see a relationship here between what we're talking about and the Freemasons. You know, people demonize the Freemasons, but the actual the Catholic Church used them for hundreds of years to to make all those. And let's say it, it, they're wonderful pieces of architecture all over Europe. And it was Pope Leo, what, the 13th, who condemned Freemasonry in 1884. And even in 1983, our current Pope said, the faithful who enroll in Masonic associations are in a state of grave sin and may not receive Holy Communion. What happened that the church was so embedded, if you will, with the Masons who were building all these wonderful pieces of, 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 of architecture, and they all of a sudden said, no, get out. You're not going to do it anymore. And it stopped in the 1700s. Yeah, well, what happened was that the um, the Knights Templars left uh, the south of France, and they had information that had been passed on successfully um, through uh, families who had moved into the areas around Provence in the south of France uh, about what was going on in Jerusalem. They were families from Jerusalem. They populated uh, areas all around uh, the area around Provence um, around the time of uh, Jesus 2,000 years ago. Um, they were escaping the Roman rule and the weather was better and all of that. And uh, these were uh, Israeli, Israel families. Like, I don't know what they were called, Hebrew, I guess. And uh, they stayed in those areas and kept, I believe, some of their memories intact of what was going on in, 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 at the temple in Jerusalem. And I believe that was... <clears throat> That was the reason the nine knights Templar went to stay in the stables outside um, where the uh, mosque is in uh, in Jerusalem, uh, and I and they were digging and they found a stash, and uh, in the stash was um, knowledge and maybe a lot of money and uh, some alchemical information, and uh, they came back to Europe. Uh, years later, um, completely transformed. Uh, they understood sacred geometry. They understood the secrets of history because the, the secret history had been put in the stash. And they had a lot of money. And they understood the secret of money and how you can turn money into more money by being in control of currencies. And uh, they um, began the banking system, the first banking systems of Europe. And the Catholic Church at first lo loved them. And they used their money to finance and build the cathedrals. And this was actually an attempt to subvert the church. As Falconelli points out in his book, uh, Mysteries of the Cathedral, there were no crucifixes or, or any allusions to Jesus in the original churches. And that's because 
these guys <clears throat> knew the truth about um, what the Catholic Church was doing, and they were attempting to build a counter-religion right under the noses of the Church. And right. they built these cathedrals as telluric energy devices to bring down telluric astral energy through the steeples into the villages. That's why the cathedrals were always built on the highest hills of, of the towns. And um, and they uh, and the way that the light uh, goes through the colored glass, which cannot be recreated even today, by the way, um, changes your pineal system and, and the way that the way that um, you look at reality is changed by uh, using different colored lights uh, on your eyes, especially in the morning. And so these were transformative devices that the church finally realized in the 1300s with the advent of the Cathars, who were Templar creations, kind of anti-church uh, religion that rose up, successfully converting Catholic after Catholic everywhere they went, preaching an anti-materialist doctrine that the church was actually Satan itself. Catholic Church came down hard on the Cathars, killed them all, and a hell of a lot more. <clears throat> and uh, then a few years later, uh, real, realizing that the Knights Templar were behind the whole thing, they got rid of the Knights Templars who escaped to Scotland. And in Eyes Wide Shut, we go to a Freemasonic Templar anti-mass, is what we're going to at the orgy, in which the Black Pope um, has his um, 12... Uh, um, uh, apostles who are naked women and uh, the music being played during the orgy scene in Eyes Wide Shut is the Catholic Mass being sung backwards, which is also what happens in a Freemasonic ritual. So much for thou shalt not kill unless uh, you're protecting your business model and, and your formula, right? Well, I think we have to come to grips with the idea that um, that what I'm saying is true, and, and and when you realize that, then you realize that there's been a breakaway civilization, um, it, to say right here on Earth, that's far more advanced than we are, and I think that's what we're really talking about. And once we understand that, just imagine somehow a civilization, a small group of people living somewhere on Earth, thousands of years ago, either cracked technology cracked the secret of technology with electronics and electrics and, and everything, and without telling anybody else in the world, or they had kept knowledge from a previous epoch and, and, and were able to use it. And then this group has essentially enslaved us uh, for thousands and thousands of years, i.e. used us to get food and have sex with and play around with. And um, this group is human, but has far more information, so much further advanced information that it just appears as magic to us. And they've been screwing with us for thousands of years. And I, you know, and the Nazis may have contacted these people. It's very likely. And then the knowledge, and then there's been um, um, technological transfers going on uh, since 1947 uh, uh, in an attempt to do something with us and them. And that's what I think, and I think Kubrick thinks that also. And these Freemasonic organizations were and are in contact with these forces. And look at what happened also during uh, Nazi times when uh, they realized that they needed to change the 
tuning frequency from A440 to A, I'm sorry, from A432 to A440. And the only places that kept the A42 were the churches. So when people would go to church, they would feel uplifted, uh, spiritually uplifted, uh, miracles happening there. And I was telling you during the last interview that uh, I wanted to change all my music collection, have an extensive uh, music collection to for uh, 32, but it's too expensive to do it song by song. So I found a piece of software that changes the whole thing. You import the whole thing and I have it available on my forum. If anybody wants to download it, it's freeware. You can change all of your music collection. And even if you listen to heavy metal, when you listen to it at A432, it's almost that like you you're at peace, and the effect of being all rowdy with the music doesn't doesn't work. What's your take on on what they did in Nazi Germany to change it worldwide? Well, I think we have to understand that um, it was actually it could have been just done to uh, make uh, all musical instruments be able to play in tune with each other, which is the excuse, of course, that we hear in music by musicologists, but. Um, at the heart of it, and you really, it's hard to explain this, you know, at some point you should probably, since this is a radio show, you should, um, uh, probably go into the difference, Mel, and we'd all like to hear, uh, that. I know I would. I've heard it. Um, I have a keyboard. I don't have it. A friend of mine has a keyboard that's been specifically tuned to the 432 modality. Uh, and you, and you put a keyboard with the 440 uh, next to it and you play the same song and you can't even believe it's the same song or the same piece to say a Bach piece or something. It's so thunderously different in 432 that it's jaw dropping. And what it does is it, it's just what you said. It removes the, the edge, the, um, diabolique is what it is, is a grading ability for um, <clears throat> notes to rub up against each other that the 440 is infamous for. And in fact, I don't know if there would even be rock and roll if there was a 432 world because it takes the edge off of it. But what it does is it, it definitely evokes a higher vibration of a, 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 almost creates a communication with a larger dimensional spirit world. Um, and, um, it's almost like those crazy channelers, you know, they say, oh, you know, angels are rushing in, you know, you can feel all these spirits rushing in when you do ceremony. But when you play the 432, that's almost what you feel like. There's like almost these angelic entities that seem to be rushing in just to have a listen to it. And every song played that way is completely different. And one of my goals in life is to, to, to bring back the 432 and to make it, um, uh, Frankly, I think it should come into everything and be part of everything and uh, because it's just so much different. And again, it can be demonstrated on radio. And I think maybe in the future you should take the time to demonstrate it so we can... Well, actually, today, today when we take uh, our break, I'll include, I always include uh, bumper music. I'll include some classical music, which is obviously royalty-free. I'll put... You know, a few seconds at 440, which is what we'll listen to today. And then I'll play the entire song at 432. And the listeners, right. let me know how you feel when you listen to it. But speaking of, of music, and you see, it, there are so many details in the movie in 2001, even the music. You may listen to the music and say, oh, that's it's not that, that big of a deal. But I heard that Kubrick was uh, playing classical music on the set just to set the, the mood, and that's why he used classical music. But he used Richard Strauss music, and I have a question because he talks about the prophet Sorastor. 
and in included the idea that uh, someday man would evolve into a superman or a higher being. And this theme is also central to 2001, making the choice of music extremely appropriate. So you think he was sending a message to us that in the future, maybe humans would merge into machines, transhumanism and singularity? Oh, it's certainly a possibility. Um, is also uh, the music is uh, called "Thus Spake Zarathustra," which is um, also based on the on Nietzsche's writings called "Thus Spake Zarathustra," which are these uh, his most fantastic and fa- fabulous writings, actually, about um, the um, evolution of man into a superman. And so, it's a double entendre by Stanley. It's not only alluding to um, uh, 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 Richard Strauss and uh, uh, his great music as the transformative music of 2001, but also to Nietzsche and his essays uh, alluding to this attempt to uh, evolve uh, or to recreate a new man that would uh, be much better than us. And this was one of Nietzsche's great dreams. In fact, Nietzsche thought he was Zoroaster. And Zoroaster himself is an interesting dude. Um, and Zarathustra, Zoroastrianism is an interesting religion. Zarathustra is an interesting guy. And uh, it's really, uh, in some ways, the very first inklings of the alchemical writings come from Persia um, and the Zoroastrian tradition. So again, we can see that he's alluding to the origins of alchemy, um, the belief that uh, through the transmutation of the spirit, the, the humans can become greater, and that uh, evolution, in a way, has reached a dead end and needs the infusion, outside influence, to um, to rise up to the next level. And this is a very Nietzschean concept and <clears throat> central to the main theme of both alchemy and 2001. And speaking of the, the music, uh, you may have heard that somebody asked Roger Waters from Pink Floyd what uh, one of his bigger disappointments in life was. And he said, I'm disappointed that we didn't produce the score for 2001, A Space of his Odyssey. But you say that they actually did, didn't they? Yeah, they did. You can go to... Uh Go to jwidener.com and, and scroll down to 2001, A Floyd Odyssey, and it's a link to a YouTube in which um, <clears throat> they successfully link uh, the song Echoes to the very beginning title of uh, the last sequence of 2001, where it says Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite, and... Um, if you if you sync it up strictly with that where that subtitle comes in, which they do in that YouTube, which you can watch, um, you'll see that Waters did in fact the song Echoes is the last seventeen and a half minutes of uh, two thousand one. It's quite evocative and uh, uh, shows you again that that there's like a language on an artistic level that only great artists can understand. And so great artists can see things in, in films and, 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 and communicate with each other across works of art that the rest of us maybe sometimes miss. And so Waters caught the greatness and the evolutionary nature and the magic and alchemy of 2001 and wanted to be part of it. And I think he really tried to recreate um, musically 2001 um, both in uh, Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall, in, in a way. Both uh, are about the moon, for one thing, and then also mind control, which is another central um, uh, idea that Kubrick is also trying to evoke. 
I would love to hear you watch the movie The Wall and even the the album The Wall and decode it. I bet you it's full of of messages. Oh, it is. It's quite amazing. Uh, Waters is well aware of what Kubrick is doing. I'm I'm sure of that. And um, and I'm sure there's a lot of people. And now it's going to change. And hopefully the landscape of filmmaking will change. We'll get a lot of people telling us things that were, were not being said before. Well, they're paying attention to you, Jay. Uh, but let me t read this before we take a break. Before I have to read you this letter that somebody sent me. It's probably from a listener. I'm not sure about 2001, the movie. He says, when I first got divorced, I lived at home with my parents for a few months. During that time, I watched a lot of movies on my desktop computer, one being the classic 2001 A Space Odyssey. My little chihuahua would often sleep on my bed while I spent time alone watching my computer screen. I would often put this movie in my DVD player and I would fall asleep watching it. One day, I got up and went to the restroom, and when I came back, there was my dog watching the movie. I wasn't. It wasn't like she was looking in the direction of the screen. She was straight up watching it. I started to watch... Uh, hold on. Uh, I started to watch her closely every time I put this movie. Sure enough, the dog watched it from the beginning to end, eyes wide open, just staring at the screen. This was about three years ago. I have since been mar being married again and life is good. I told my new wifey about our dog. She kind of laughed it off. I don't think she believed it. Believe me. The other night, just by chance, 2001 was on TV and I remember what my dog would do when I would play the movie. I told my wife, watch this. Watch what our dog does when the movie's on. Sure enough, my dog froze and watched. Wife was blown away. My theory is there is an underlying sound that's hidden in the movie only dogs can hear. I'm well aware of the beginning of the movie when it is just black and there is a humming sound for a few minutes. Could this sound continue at a level that as humans we cannot hear? I ask all dog owners that have this movie to try this out. What do you think, Jay? Oh, I absolutely sure it. In fact, um, right before the uh, famous trumpet comes in for Thus Speak Zarathustra at the beginning, there's a, an a organ sound um, that is the lowest possible note that you can get. And um, it, it, you know, it, it, it rumbles through your soul. It's so low. And um, I'm Kubrick also, 2000, you should understand, <clears throat> 2001 was really the first movie to, um, to concentrate uh, almost as much energy on the soundtrack that they did on the movie. Before mm -hmm. 2001, soundtracks were always just second nature. They were something you did after you were done. And no one really thought or cared about the soundtrack too much. After 2001, we we have the birth of the soundtrack, and this gave birth to all the great films of the 1970s. The reason that the 1970s produced so many great movies was because that was the beginning. Our generation, my generation, I mean, had begun making films. We were young uh, filmmakers at the time, all heavily influenced by 2001 and its use of soundtrack. And we realized that even if we couldn't afford um, big special effects and all that, uh, we could, you know, afford the time at the end in post-production to make a good soundtrack. And so the 70s was the beginning, and now, of course, all films have good soundtracks, uh, of, of this <clears throat> idea that sound was almost more important than what you're watching. And I have no doubt that Kubrick is doing all sorts of things with the soundtrack. In The Shining, you can actually hear voices 
on the soundtrack. Uh, I think a couple of times there's Stanley himself and um, uh, talking to you, the audience, hmm. telling you things. And uh, there's backwards uh, masking and uh, all sorts of interesting things going on. So, so I have no doubt that uh, Stanley Kubrick, he may have even done it just so his dog would watch the movie. I remember as a kid taking all my Led Zeppelin LPs and Kiss and doing the backward masking with the turntable. But we have to take our one and only intermission, Jay. Please tell us once again how to get in touch with your work, buy your DVDs. Yeah, um, my articles, uh, High Weirdness, are all at uh, jwidener.com, J-A-Y-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And you can get my DVDs and movies and other material <clears throat> at uh, sacredmysteries.com. And... Um, Uh, go there and check out the Kubrick stuff and uh, um, support the filmmaker if you can. Absolutely. And folks, don't go anywhere. This is, we're very privileged, privileged to have Jay Weiner again. This is take two of our first interview. When we come back, there's a lot more more to discuss with Jay Weiner. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Before we go to the intermission, And as promised during my conversation with Jay Widener, I will demonstrate the difference between A432 and A440 Hertz. But first, a brief background, in case you wonder what I'm talking about. In 1939, Josef Goebbels, propaganda minister for Nazi Germany, was the first to push for all music worldwide to be played and listened to at A440 Hertz. He failed, but in 1953, the elite had a meeting in London to finally impose the A440 Hertz standard concert pitch, and they succeeded. Professor Dussault of the Paris Conservatory had a poll of over 20,000 of the head classical musicians of France, and they all voted unanimously for A432 Hertz. But the elite does not care what others think now, do they? So they kept the A440 Hertz. There is more than one reason for doing this. Goebbels knew that A432 was the only resonant frequency that had perfect harmonic balance. He also knew that locked inside the A432 structure was one of Pandora's boxes. The math that is evident when tuned to A432 shows what some call the Plato Code. Just like there are hidden codes written into the Bible, there are also hidden codes in the 432 matrix. 432 is the only resonant frequency that is capable of naturally reproducing what is called the Pythagorean musical spiral. It's the same sequence of growth that all life follows. It utilizes the formula of pi, also known as the golden mean, and is also found in the Fibonacci sequence. I know this may be a lot to take in, but what I'm trying to say is, in a nutshell, a440 Hertz is bad, and A432 Hertz is good. 432 Hertz is the neutral center of our universe. I have a piece of software at our forum that I will share with all Veritas members. The software is free, and you'll be able to import all of your music and listen to it in A432. You may find instructions on how to accomplish that there. There are services on the internet that charge $1 per song. This is another benefit of being a very test member. Now, let me demonstrate the A440 and the A432 difference. I will share with you three clips of three songs, 30 seconds each. 
First, I will play them in the current A440Hz format, and the A432Hz will follow. It's classical music, so either way, it is beautiful music, but you may or may not hear the difference. After, I will include tonight's bumper music. You know the song by now. It's Vladimir Persan's song titled, Don't. When you hear this song, you'll always think of Veritas. It's actually what I consider to be our anthem. But this time, I will share with you the full version of the song at A432 Hertz, which I haven't played before. And then, we'll return with another hour with Jay Widener in the member section. To listen to part two, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Okay, here we go. We'll start with A440 Hertz. Now at A432. at 8440. A432. A440. A432. the difference? Well, now here's the full version of Vladimir Persen's Veritas Anthem in A432 Hertz. 
See you in the member section. Enjoy.
This is the Karai Sitching, and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. Mm-hmm. 